At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 29, The Malayan Emergency, part 2, 1952 to 1960. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, before we begin today, don't forget to check out our website for photos that go along with this episode. And as always, I want to apologize in advance for any mispronunciations. So last time we spoke, the Malayan Emergency had been raging for four years, but neither side seemed to be close to victory. The communists had killed hundreds, spreading terror across the land, disrupting the economy, and their army had grown to some 7,000 fighters. Yet they were no closer to capturing Malaya as when they had started. The British had poured troops and treasure into, into the fight, deploying the Gurkhas, heavy Lincoln bombers, and their newest jet aircraft. Yet they couldn't prevent attacks, nor could they even protect their own high commissioner who was assassinated in broad daylight outside of the capital. As 1952 dawned, Malaya had neither a high commissioner nor a chief of police, and Briggs had resigned as the chief of operations. Leighton and Churchill searched diligently for their new generalissimo, but failed to find a man quickly. Many who were offered the job just turned it down. They considered Malaya a Gordian knot and a career killer. Churchill then requested a list of generals and called the fifth name on the list General Templar. General Templer was 54 and educated at Wellington and Sandhurst. He was a soldier's soldier. His speech was very colorful, and he was to the point, the British equivalent of Patton. He had saw service at 18 in World War I and was a member of the British Olympic uh, hurdles team in 1924 and the Army bayonet fighting champion. In World War II, at 44, he became the youngest lieutenant general in the British Army. After the war, he served as the director of military government in northwest Germany. Uh, well, there, he argued that it was the best to offer Germans incentives to work with the Allies to keep them away from the communist influence. After his time in Germany, he was appointed head of military intelligence. When Churchill offered Templer the job, Templer said he considered it his duty, and three weeks later, he was in Malaya, armed with, the, with uh, military and political powers greater than any British soldier since Oliver Cromwell. When the general arrived, his 40 servants to King's House, the high commissioner's residence, were lined up to receive him. Templar asked his aide, do I shake their hands? And the aide replied, sir, the high commissioner would never shake the hands of those people. Templar turned to him and said, that practice dies here, and got out of the car and proceeded to shake the hands of every servant. He also improved all the servants' living quarters and ordered the king's house be fenced in with barbed wire to look like a fortress. He read every letter mailed to him, no matter who wrote it. He insisted everyone obey his orders on the double. He hated racism and had the all-white club in Kuala Lumpur desegregated after they had refused entry to distinguished Malayans. He also despised those planters and miners who mistreated their workers. He also worked with a very small staff of nine people and spent most of his time outside of Kuala Lumpur, visiting the areas, making sure his orders were being carried out. He visited schools, hospitals, and troops in the field. He didn't tolerate feuds amongst his staff either. He said if their differences couldn't be worked out over a bottle of whiskey, he would replace them. Though Templar was a general, he had a keen political sense and understood that this was a conflict which could not be won by military means alone. He realized that victory in Malaya was dependent on intelligence and winning the hearts and minds, a term he himself coined. He realized that Malaya should ultimately be governed uh, or given self-governance as an incentive to move the Malayans away from the appeal of the communist movement and revolution. 
Therefore, Templar's plan was to drive back the communists to a level from which Malaya could become independent and safely democratic. Templar realized the value of many of Gurney's uh, plans and kept most of his programs in place and, if anything, expanded them. He expanded the Home Guard to include more Chinese, and more than 70 new villages were protected by, by Chinese Home Guard units. Other Home Guard units were patrolling areas, freeing up troops and police for other operations. This was a big gamble, as some of the weapons issued to them might end up in communist hands, or the Home Guard could be considered soft targets and attacked more by the communists. However, it was a bet that paid off. Only rarely did the Chinese Home Guard fail in its duties. He increased the numbers of teachers and was deeply involved in rural development programs, in granting loans and establishing cooperative societies. When he was short of cash and he couldn't get, couldn't get any from London, he borrowed it himself. After a request for $4 million to buy American carbines was turned down, Templar got a loan from the Sultan of Brunei on his own personal credit to supply the weapons. Templar also believed that it was vital that citizenship be granted to the hundreds of thousands of Chinese for whom Malaya was home and who were contributing so much for the nation. To Templar, this was, the only, this was one of the key steps necessary in establishing a multiracial independent Malaya. At the start of the war, an official committee had been formed where leaders of the different communities could meet to hash out their problems. At times, both Malayans and Chinese threatened to walk out, but in the end, both sides made concessions. They found a formula for citizenship which would be offered to all the people born in Malaya and to the children of one parent who was born in Malaya. And on September the 14th, 1952, some 1.2 million Chinese and 180,000 Indians became Malayan citizens. Templar also raised the bounties that Gurney had uh, started to staggering levels. Malaya was making a lot of money as a result of the demand for rubber and tin in the Korean War, and Templar reinvested these funds into fighting the communists. The bounty for Chinping was raised to 250000 alive, or about $2 million in today's money. Any member of the Politburo was worth 200000 alive and half that dead. The results were immediate. Within a few days of raising the bounties, a deputy commander of the 5th Malayan Regiment, uh, and Communist Regiment, that is, and his wife walked into a police station. He was so astonished about the good treatment he received that he returned to the jungle and convinced 11 of his former comrades to surrender and was paid $12,875, or about 118000 in today's money. Templar, having come from army intelligence, was, was keen of developing Malayan special branch, or Malayan intelligence. Within two days of his arrival, he made Guy Maddock, one of the British intelligence's top analysts, head of intelligence in Malaya. Special branch would report directly to Templar and not through the police as in the past. A huge intelligence center was created hidden behind a rubber plantation covering some 10 acres, surrounded by a 10-feet-high fence, a laboratory for processing documents, a machine shop for work on secret devices, and a nationwide library of every major communist in the country was built up stretching with documents stretching back to the late 1940s. One of the most successful special branch operations during this time was the capture and return of communist radios. Communist radios in the field would often uh, need repair, and local me mechanics and shops would repair these sets. Often the shop owners were double agents and would allow the British to bug the radios with homing devices. The communists would then return with their radios to their jungle camps, and the RAF would use the homing devices as beacons to drop their bombs, ensuring pinpoint strikes in the dense jungle. Special Branch also began the painstaking task of deconstructing Jinping's cur courier system. Slowly, individual postmen were turned, and the British were able to access Jinping's mail, breaking his codes and reading his mail. They learned that there was a postmaster, and if they could find this person, it would cripple Jinping's communication network. Luckily, through the hard work of Irene Lee, a diligent Chinese intelligence officer in her early 20s, she was able to skillfully hunt down Li Ming. Templar also appointed Arthur Young to the command of the police and the Home Guard. Arthur Young had 250,000 men under his command, uh, but they were bitterly divided and lacked training and equipment. 
Young's first move was to request 120 armed ca- armored cars and 600 armored personnel carriers, plus a large number of Thompson submachine guns and 12-gauge shotguns, uh, which the government approved and greatly improved morale. The armored cars and personnel carriers helped save police lives from communist ambushes, and the Tommy guns and shotguns were well-suited for close-up combat in the jungle or urban environments the police found themselves fighting in. By mid-1952, 40,000 British and Imperial troops were fighting in Malaya, including 60,000 police and 200,000 home guards. However, 60% of these troops were not the crack SAS squadrons or Gurkhas, but conscripts from Britain who had very little experience with the jungle, let alone fighting in it, and they were often led by NCOs and officers who had little or no experience with the jungle fighting either. Things soon changed, though, by 1952. A jungle warfare school was established in Johor with Australian instructors who had fought in New Guinea during World War II. Graduates of this school were trained NCOs and junior British officers, and by 1952, infantry patrols were led by a trained junior officer backed by a British NCO with experience in jungle fighting. The RAF also continued its support of the war effort, flying some 4,000 sorties and dropping some 4,000 tons of bombs, 10,000 rockets, and 2 million rounds of ammunition. Helicopters lifted some 168 casualties to safety. Yet government forces still couldn't prevent enemy attacks. One area, Tanjong, a community of some 20,000, was especially bad for its enemy activities. Seven men of the Gordian Highlanders, seven civilians, and eight policemen since the start of 1952 had been killed. On top of this, the communists had cut the local water pipe to the midtown five times. On March the 24th, they cut the line again, and a repair crew was sent out to fix the pipe yet again. The work party was ambushed, killing four civilians and seven policemen. On hearing the news, Templar flew into a rage. He ordered 350 local community leaders to assemble in the hall of the local sultan, and he flew there via helicopter. In front of the meeting of community leaders, he spoke, quote, It doesn't amuse me to punish innocent people, but many of you are not innocent. Close quote. You have, you have information which you are too cowardly to give. You are all aware of the savage outrage that has taken place here in the last 48 hours. For an hour, he lectured them, and then he announced a collective punishment for the crime of silence. There would be a 22-hour lockdown. People would only be allowed out of their homes between noon and 2 p.m. No one could leave the town. Schools would be closed, the buses would not run, and their food rations were cut in half. Then, after a week of this curfew, he arranged for a questionnaire to be delivered to the head of every household. Every form had to be returned, whether it contained information or not. Then Templar, in spectacular fashion, read through all the forms himself in front of six community leaders at King's house, taking notes and then destroying the forms. Inevitably, this collective punishment produced a firestorm in Britain. The Manchester Guardian described it as, quote, odious. Well, the observer thought it was, quote, lamentable. In the House of Lords, Listwell, Lord Listwell uh, said collective punishment would turn the people against the British and into the arms of the communists. But Templar was unshaken and pressed on with his strategy, sending a second batch of questionnaires under the same guarantee of secrecy. Some of these questionnaires returned with valuable information, and 38 subsequent arrests were made. That same day, the curfew was lifted. Within days, the communist force, which had infested the region, split up, and for the remaining eight years of the war, Tanjong became one of the quietest regions of Malaya. Templar's first few months in office witnessed a sharp decline in violence. During the first six months of 1952, the number of monthly attacks by the communists had fallen from 507 in 1951 to 428 by 1952, although this was partly a result of Jinping's new order calling for less violence, though the public attributed all to Templar's style. Templar also decided to bring more of the war to the communists. A string of forts were built in the interior of the country by the SAS to isolate the aboriginal peoples from supporting the communists, and to act as a forward-deployed intelligence-gathering uh, posts, which were supplied through airdrops. 
The communists had been retreating deeper and deeper into the jungle to escape from the British and had come to rely heavily on the aboriginal peoples. They were growing their food, acted as guides, porters, and worked as scouts to warn the communists of security forces. The, Brit the British couldn't resettle these people like the squatters. They were too far into the jungle for them to practically move them, so it was decided that building these forts to protect them from the communists would and to provide medical aid would win the hearts and minds of these tribesmen. The British also brought in a force of 120 Rhodesian scouts to serve with the SAS. These men were used to tracking in Africa and would go out uh, on patrol for 103 days at a time deep into the jungle to help Aboriginal peoples not near SAS forts, carrying with them medical supplies and penicillin. They would give medical care to the tribespeople. Their main task, however, was to, was to send out small patrols of three or four men to lay ambushes for the communists moving through the jungle. More helicopters also started to make an appearance as well. Five dragonflies were deployed uh, in a casualty evacuation role. However, one of these aircrafts were destroyed by accident, and the other four were plagued with mechanical malfunctions, so that by 1953, the unit was out of action. In 1952, a Malayan politician, Tanku, emerged uh, to, who shared Templar's hopes for a multiracial, independent Malaya, a local ally Templar would forge an alliance with, and... Uh, just, so, the, just the sort of type of individual the British were looking to leave the country to. 1952 was a hard year for the communists. Jinping lost 1,502 men, including four of his top commanders, in the space of a few months, and with the arrest of Li Ming, it was difficult for him to even make contact with his units in southern Malaya. Imperial forces used long-range patrols into the jungle to apply constant pressure to the communists. Air patrols would search for the communists and then direct troops to their locations. These patrols lasted about two months, but increased to three in 1953, and some operations would later uh, add up to, would last up to six months. These operations kept the communists constantly on the move, taking the initiative away from them and denying them the means of survival. The communists were retreating deeper and deeper into the jungle, meaning it was harder for them to make attacks on the government. Food controls were, were strangling their supplies, and even members of the Central Committee found themselves short of food. The communists, meanwhile, had begun to establish bases across the border in Thailand to escape the reach of the British. The border was ill-defined and uninhabited terrain with no border fences or guards. From here, the communists were able to recruit, train, and rest seasoned men. Equally important, they were able to obtain and organize food to send south. Nevertheless, Peng was deeply troubled as the Malayan government was functioning so that the people were placing their future hopes in its continuation. Malayans started to trust the government, and with the expansion of citizenship to all and independence in the near future, it weakened the legitimacy of the communist revolution. The number of communists killed in 1952 was the highest ever, at 1,148, with 123 captured and 256 who had surrendered whereas security forces lost 263 killed and 401 wounded, a half of the number of 1951, while civilian casualties declined to 343 killed, 158 wounded, and 131 missing. In the spring of 1953, Ping decided to flee Malaya and directed the war from Thailand, a shattering blow to communist morale. The British, meanwhile, were expanding their war against the communists further. A new unit of 180 former communist soldiers was formed to catch their former comrades. The British felt these men needed to belong to some organization larger than themselves, and why not that make that organization the Malayan army? Or why not turn poachers into gamekeepers? Each man volunteered for 18 months, lived in police compounds, and received similar salaries to lower-ranking policemen. Many of the members were indeed married couples, and the government took some care in not publicizing the fact that women were serving. Nonetheless, women in the war proved to be just as skillful and ruthless as men. The tempo of air operations in 1953 declined greatly from 1952 levels, as the strategy shifted away from saturation bombing of jungle areas to pinpoint attacks. In July, however, this policy was reversed when intelligence report reports confirmed that saturation bombing demoralized the enemy, causing many to surrender. New photo reconnaissance aircraft, the, uh, such as the Gloucester Meteors, were also deployed to Malaya. 
However, despite the, the fact photoreconnaissance aircraft flew about 100 sorties a month, their ability to produce satisfactory results declined. The communists by this point had become masters of camouflage and had become very nervous about lone aircraft. If they suspected they were under surveillance, they would quickly abandon a camp and move on. In November 1953, one heavy airstrike by Lincoln's of the 1st Squadron of the Royal Australian Air Force came close to killing Chinping. He managed to escape, although three of his bodyguards were killed and another of his three of his staff were wounded. 1953 also saw the establishment of a new helicopter transport and medevac unit outside of Kuala Lumpur with three American-made S-55s and two Dragonflies while another five helicopters were deployed to Singapore, uh, which with another additional four held in reserve. In all, some 493 casualties were flown to safety. Templar offered more carrots as well. Any area free from communist incident and where people had become helpful to the police were declared white areas, meaning rationing, the curfews, police checks, and food restrictions were all lifted. These zones returned to normal life, and regions around them strove to become white areas as well. Once these areas were declared white, they were held by the police and home guard, thus freeing up the army to deal with stronger pockets of resistance and allowing for more troops to participate in jungle patrols. Templar also convinced the sultans to open the Malayan civil service to all Malayans, no matter their ethnic backgrounds. He also instituted a program of massive free primary school education across the country. The various races would no longer be educated in their own schools, but attend school together. By the middle of 1953, General Templer decided it was time for him to leave. He believed that as Malayans moved towards the final defeat of the communists, the problems facing the country would become more political and less military, and Templer feared becoming a father-like figure and thus indispensable. Arthur Young, the head of police, retired as well, replaced by Bill Carbonell. Moreover, Templer believed that the people of Malaya no longer needed him. He had won the war of hearts and minds. The Malayans, uh, be they Malayan, Chinese, or Indian origin, were just as determined to fight for a multiracial democratic Malaya as any British soldier against the communists. And by 1953, the rates of violent attack had fallen to seven a month. In the course of 1953, security forces killed some 947 communists, captured 73, with an additional 372 who had surrendered, while security forces themselves lost 92 men, 117 who were wounded, uh, with an only 85 civilians killed, 15 wounded, and 43 missing. Uh, for the first time as well in the war, Malayan forces comprised the majority of imperial forces fighting in Malaya with eight Malayan battalions, seven British, seven Gurkha, and one African, one Fijian. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening to the podcast and for sharing us with your friends and family. Me and my colleague David Forrest spend a great deal of time on this podcast. The average episode takes between 10 to 15 hours and costs 10 to 20 bucks, not including monthly uh, hosting fees and the website. Nevertheless, you guys represent the hearts of this show. I'm a historian of the old school Leopold von Rankin method. My goal, as challenging as it is, is to try and give you an understanding of what happened and how it happened to the best of my ability. Although I might from time to time give different perspectives or play devil's advocate, I want you, the listeners, to make your own ethical and political con conclusions about what happened and why. I do not and will not share my political, ideological, or religious beliefs on this show. As a school of history, we are a dying breed. Most historians these days come from different schools of thought that promote a certain set of ideological and political beliefs before they examine a subject. That's not to say that they are bad historians or their work is flawed. It's a comment on the lack of historical perspectives available today. If you enjoy this historical approach that I have taken in this show, please consider donating uh, through our website uh, through Patreon, $5 a month or whatever amount you feel is appropriate. Your donation will help uh, keep this genre of history alive. Thank you, and now let's get back to the show. Before Templar's departure, he declared that Malaya in 1955 would hold its first national elections for the Federal Legislative Council. However, Templar warned that Malaya still faced hard times to come 
and he would, quote, shoot the bastard that said that the emergency was over. Though Malaya was firmly on the path to independence, there were certainly no signs of victory ahead. The new high commissioner, Donald McGalliver, uh, would replace Templar, but lack his dictatorial powers as Sir Geoffrey uh, Bourne became the director of operations. Military operations in 1954 closely resembled those of 1953. They continued to harass and isolate the remaining pockets of communists located primarily in central Malaya in order to cut the communist forces in, in half from those operating in the south around Johor from those operating along the Thai border. Nevertheless, the British continued to enhance their capabilities. They introduced the new Bristol Sycamore to replace the dragonflies, which were suffering from mechanical issues due to the intense level of operations. By mid-1954, only one Dragonfly and one F-55 were in operational conditions. Still, in 1954, some 743 casualties were evacuated. The number of white areas continued to grow. However, the communist victory in Vietnam over the French lifted the morale of the communist movement in Malaya. The British, however, launched a new offensive against the communists. First, the SAS would construct more forts in the interior. Second, the army and police would attempt to control known black areas of enemy activity versus rushing from place to place in response to the enemy. And finally, the police would uh, make it even greater, take even greater control of the food supply in non-white areas. Plus, tougher rationing on the sale of, of clothes and medicine were also imposed. Dominating black areas resulted in capturing over 50 food and clothing enemy dumps. At this point, many communist soldiers were starving, living on bananas, snake, and elephant meat. Their bodies were covered in sores as they lacked medicine and were suffering from malaria and dysentery. Their uniforms were rags, and even the stocks of their rifles started to rot. By June 1954, the average number of, of civilian and military personnel deaths had fallen to 35 a month in, in stark contrast to its 1951 high of 188. Only about 3,500 members in the Malayan uh, Races Liberation Army were still in the field. As the elections approached, uh, Tukun uh, looked to become the first prime minister of Malaya, to, and to do this, he needed to expand his alliance. So he engineered a new alliance between his party, the United Malayan National Organization, and the Malayan Chinese Association. Later, he expanded the alliance further to include the Malayan Indian Congress Party. Jinping dropped a bombshell, though, and offered to negotiate a peace settlement at a roundtable conference. On July the 31st, 85% of the people went to the polls, and Tunku's Triple Alliance won a resounding victory, winning 51 out of the 52 seats. It had taken great political skill to forge the Chinese, Malayans, and Indian parties into a coalition. Tunku's first uh, public statement as prime minister or was, a swift for, was for a swift end to the war. His second pri uh, priority would be independence, although he did strongly criticize the fact that the high commissioner still retained a veto power in the new state. On September the 9th, uh, Tukun uh, offered P Jinping a general amnesty, absolving them, them of murder, and 12 million amnesty passes were showered over the jungle. He didn't expect Jinping to accept his offer. Rather, he wanted to force him into a position to react or make a counteroffer. Three weeks later, Jinping called for an immediate ceasefire and peace talks. The Malayan politicians felt that Jinping would surrender and the war would be over, and even if the MCP were allowed to remain as a legal party, they would be watched. Both the Malayans and the communists wanted the war to end. The communists were taking a beating and wanted a way out that would allow them to save face, and the Malayans did not, didn't want a war as a new nation. The British, on the other hand, were, after seven long years of war, were horrified at the prospect. The British believed that the communists would always harbor a long-term ambition of taking over the country. The British were, were in a, a catch-22, though. If they prevented Tukun from signing a peace deal, they would be accused of being imperialists. However, if they let the peace talks move forward, Jinping would exploit them as a communist victory. Special Branch and Tang Ku 
prepared to for the peace co- talks like a debate. CC2 was brought in to play the part of Jinping, and for an entire day, the talks were staged to anticipate each communist move and counter-move. When the talks came, Tung Ku's terms were generous. Any surrendered guerrilla willing to abandon communism would be freed or sent to China if they wished. Jinping was prepared to disband his army, but insisted that the Communist Party must be recognized as a legal political party after Malaya's independence. Tun Ku refused, and the talks broke down. The talks failed mostly because both men were honest leaders, ironically enough. Tukun would never allow the communists to take credit for independence, which he, they were bound to do if they were allowed back into the political fold. And Jinping would never be willingly give up his ideology and accept total defeat. At this point, Tun Ku knew this was a war to the bitter end. The communists would accept nothing less than victory. London agreed that Malaya would become fully independent in 1957. With the approaching independence, it caused divisions within the MCP. The more aggressive members wanted to continue the struggle. They argued that uh, Britain would, not, would no doubt limit her military and economic aid, and thus it would be much easier to take over the country. Jinping hoped to re-enter the peace talks, buying time for his forces to, to rest in a prolonged peace, ceasefire and attempting to gain international support from China and the Soviet Union. But Tanku saw through this ruse and turned down any hopes for more talks. Overall, 1954 was another tough year for the MCP as they lost 709 fighters, 51 were captured, and 211 surrendered. The security forces, in contrast, lost just 87 killed, 154 wounded, while civilian casualties amounted to 97 killed, 31 wounded, and 57 missing. By 1955, nearly one-third of Malayans lived in white areas, and the Malayan People's Army no longer looked to launch attacks or ambushes, but to avoid the security forces by all costs. Thailand and Malaya also signed a treaty allowing security patrols to operate within 20 miles of each other's territory and allowed British aircraft and helicopters to operate deeper inside Thailand, forcing the communists further into Thailand and away from their allies in Malaya. The British also deployed four of their new Canberra jet bombers to the region to take a part in the operations, which you can check out on the website. However, they saw no action until the general amnesty ended. 1956 also saw the introduction of four converted Huntington-Pembroke photoreconnaissance aircraft to replace the aging mosquitoes. The Royal Navy also deployed two sycamores and nine whirlwind helicopters to help with helicopter capacity. However, the whirlwinds performed poorly and had to be pulled from service. By the end of 1955, Britain had some 17 helicopters in Malaya, composed of S-55s and whirlwinds, with another 11 sycamores and dragonflies in reserve, uh, barely enough to meet its needs. In all, some 793 casualties were lifted to safety in 1955. Tang Ku hoped that even though he couldn't convince Jinping to surrender, his general amnesty would cause the majority of Jinping's fighters to give up. He was, however, disappointed as only 30 had surrendered. Therefore, the military was given the green light and military operations resumed in February 1956. By this time, nearly half of Malaya was considered white territory. Tanku also secured the continued assistance of British forces in the region. The government and SIS had also won the support of the Aboriginal peoples as the vast majority came to support the government, making it even more difficult for the communists to maintain a fighting force in central Malaya. Air sorties continued to decline from 1955 as they lacked targets as the communists avoided contact with security forces and attempted to hide in isolated remote areas deep in the jungle where they would be difficult to spot. In April, the deputy leader of the Communist Party had been killed and only some 2,063 MCP soldiers remained in the field. The MCP's only real option at this point was to try and remain intact and wait until they could either rejoin the political scene legally or, if outside communist help from China or the Soviet Union, change the situation somehow in their favor, both of which were political long shots. 
With a month to go before independence, only one person was killed. By now, there were barely 2,000 active communist fighters, a thousand of whom were located along the remote border with Thailand. On August the 31st, 1957, a great ceremony was held in Kuala Lumpur celebrating Malaya's independence. The communists, with no imperialists left to fight, became outlaws. By September 1957, it totaled just 1,830 men, of whom 470 were in Thailand and 1,360 were in Malaya, starving in the jungles, eating rats and frogs. Responsibility for the war was transferred to the new Malayan government, and those British forces that stayed behind came under Malayan command. Tanku offered a fresh round of amnesty, and millions of more leaflets were dropped over the jungle. Tang Kuhn also continued to wage the war for hearts and minds as well. The last three years of the war saw major investments in constructing roads, bridges, water systems, schools, hospitals, and clearing jungles for farming. By spring 1958, the Malayan Races Liberation Army had dwindled to some 1,078 soldiers scattered throughout Malaya and Thailand. By the end of 1958, there were only 250 operational communist fighters in Malaya. In August 1959, Tuk Tanku was re-elected prime minister and it was decided to end the emergency in 1960 with a fa fantastic military parade. Jinping all, all but admitted military defeat and issued a directive by which any member of the Malayan Communist Party could apply to leave the Malayan People's Army if they were too sick, old, or wanted to get married and start a family, offering soldiers a severance package of $420. An estimated 12,000 people served in the ranks of the Malayan Races Liberation Army. 6,698 died, 2,819 were wounded, and 2,696 surrendered, About and another 1,000 or so died of disease, deserted, or were executed for one reason or another by their comrades. Security forces lost 1,865 killed, 2,660 wounded, along with 2,473 civilians killed, 1,385 wounded, and 810 missing. The Malayan army had grown to some 40,000 men, and the police had grown from a force of 9,000 to 67,000, with the Home Guard at 350,000 strong. After 1960, Jinping continued to live in the jungles of Thailand with his few remaining followers, until finally surrendering in 1989. Jinping continued to live in exile as his application to return to Malaya was turned down. He died in 2013, and the Malayan government to this day refuses for his remains to be buried in Malaya. Malaya, like all wars, had its controversies. Many point out the atrocities committed by the British during the, the emergency, and rightfully so. But it should be noted that atrocities were committed by both sides during the conflict, and many debatable decisions were made. One of the most controversial decisions in the war was the resettlement of the squatters. Many cited this as a collective punishment and a violation of the Geneva Convention, calling the camps concentration camps. Legally, though, it's hard to see that the British in this case violated the Geneva Convention. This was technically not a war, and the squatters were not citizens of an alien power but subjects of the king, and legally they were squatting on private property. Moreover, it would be inaccurate to describe the new villages as concentration camps. Granted, many who went there went against their will, but they were given grants of land along with free health care, clean water, and free school for their children, in stark contrast to the Nazi concentration camps like Auschwitz or Stalin's Gulag. Many of these villages persisted long after the emergency ended as communities. On the other hand, you were kept in these villages as a virtual inmate. Some claim that Britain didn't win in Malaya because they didn't retain Malaya as a colony. But I think this, this view ignores Britain's stated objective, which was to leave a democratic modern Malaya, a member of the, the Commonwealth, where Britain would maintain a level of political and economic influence. Yes, some hardliners like Churchill wanted to maintain a formal empire, but most British officials and politicians realized those days were over. Britain could not and would no longer subject millions of people to harsh dictatorial rule. She could neither afford to maintain such an empire economically nor suffer the negative optics of maintaining such an empire uh, publicly. 
soft empire or empire light was more economical and allowed many of the benefits of empire but without the cost or administration. As the Colonial Office recognized in 1952, quote, By and large, it is inconceivable in the circumstances of the world today that we would use force to actually retain a large colony under British administration against the wishes of a majority of its people, close quote. Consequently, it was British policy to, to identify modern, educated, democratic, and capitalist colonial subjects they could devolve power to without the society collapsing or falling into the hands of the communists. So in summation, why did Britain win in Malaya and the communists lose versus what happened in Vietnam with the French or the Americans? The British won for four primary reasons. They had the right leadership, they understood their enemy, they played the long game, and they dedicated their limited resources strategically. Although Britain began the emergency with weak leadership with the person of Ghent, it was, it was lucky in selecting Gurney and Templer as subsequent high commissioners. Both Gurney and Templer understood that the British were involved in a longer-term ideological struggle in Malaya. Churchill, although not a perfect leader, as some would make him out to be, understood the value of Malaya in the larger Cold War struggle and was willing to make Malaya a priority, dedicating the necessary resources to the struggle. Churchill very easily could have decided to surrender as the Dutch or French had done, leaving the communists with a seat in the Malayan Republic, essentially cutting British losses and going home versus doubling down, or he could have sought to prioritize Britain's commitment to the struggle in Korea. In The Art of War, it is written, if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you may not fear the results of a hundred battles. Thus, intelligence and propaganda played a key role in the victory in Malaya. Special Branch gave the British a deep understanding of the MCP, and they were able to anticipate its moves and understand its weaknesses. For example, it unraveled Jinping's courier network and exploited the divisions between the rank-and-file troops around females becoming officers' mistress. This wasn't propaganda that talked about why democracy was better than communism. It focused on the injustice right in front of the men's eyes. The British also played the long game in Malaya. The British strategy developed by Gurney and perfected by Templar sought to win the conflict over a protracted period of time, in contrast to the MCP, who sought victory in a short two- to three-year campaign. Gurney and Templar realized that they couldn't win the conflict by force of arms alone and that they would have to build a democratic Malaya to lead the fight against the communists, and in order to defeat the communists, they would have to win over the Chinese people, thus destroying the base of the MCP's support. Therefore, the battle of hearts and minds became the critical objective. Finally, Britain never deployed the number of forces that the French or Americans did to Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan. Britain relied heavily on the Malayan army to shoulder most of the fight and beefed up the police forces and home guard. This was key in two respects. In one way, given its asymmetrical nature, police units were pr provided a greater value. Detective work in arresting the Min Yun did far greater damage to the MCP than another 10,000 English conscripts wandering through the jungle. Second, forces like the Home Guard freed up British and Imperial forces to take offensive actions versus guarding villages or government buildings. Air power also played a decisive role in the campaign. The RAF and the Commonwealth Air Forces continuously harassed the enemy and inflicted casualties. The Malayan communists had little air defense against these aircraft beyond their small arms. The constant attacks, especially those made by the Lincoln bombers, demoralized hundreds of the communists, and the voice aircraft convinced many more to surrender. Moreover, air power was a great moral morale boost to the imperial forces, especially in the darkest days of the conflict. Finally, and probably most critical, from a logistical and visual reconnaissance standpoint, the war wouldn't have been won without the transport aircraft that dropped supplies to Imperial forces and the spotters who located enemy forces in camps. The helicopter also played a small but vital role in Malaya, foreshadowing its use by American forces in Vietnam. In all, helicopters in, the Malaya, in Malaya evacuated some 5,000 casualties, many of whom would have died if it wasn't for their prompt assistance. But the helicopter also became an offensive weapon in Malaya, as some 110,000 troops were transported by helicopter during the war. 
The later stages of the conflict saw helicopters drop troops deep into the jungle behind enemy lines. The need for a reliable, tough medium helicopter also became apparent in Malaya. The light helicopters of the 1950s just couldn't take the demands of combat, combat and continuous use. Nevertheless, as much as the Malayan emergency was a British victory, it was also an MCP defeat. The MCP and Jinping lost the conflict for four primary reasons. Lack of a sponsor, gross underestimation of the British, they played the short game, and inexperience. Unlike the Vietnamese, the Malayans never received any serious material aid from either China or the Soviet Union. This didn't, however, condemn them to defeat. Many resistance movements, like Castro in Cuba or the Jews in Palestine, lacked national sponsors and achieved victory. However, without these funds and weapons, it makes it a lot harder. It's debatable even if the United States would have won its independence without the assistance of the French. In stark contrast to my earlier quote from Sun Tzu, he also warns that if you know neither yourself nor the enemy, you will lose every battle, and I think this was definitely the case with the MCP. Yes, economically, politically, and militarily, the 40s were not good for the British Empire, but Xin Ping should have noted that in spite of the incredible odds at times, the British Empire was managing to survive. Assuming that the British planters and miners would just flee and not fight back was a miscalculation. To expect the British government to surrender and not to fight back as well was a huge military and political blunder. Xin Ping and the MCP leadership should have anticipated what they would do if the British fought back and their plan failed to materialize. Xin Ping and the MCP never altered their plan, especially after 1950 and 1951, when it was clear that Xin Ping's four-step plan had failed. More importantly, the MCP grossly overestimated themselves. It wasn't the Malayan People's Army which had humbled the Japanese Empire. The Americans broke the Japanese Navy's back at Midway and Leyte Gulf. Its submarines cut its trade lanes, and its bombers leveled its cities with firestorms and atomic bombs, killing hundreds of thousands of people. The MCP also neglected the fact that the Japanese army that defeated the British in Malaya in 1942 was a modern force with some 50,000 men, tanks, and artillery with air support and not a small guerrilla army that lacked an air force and heavy weapons, which had been key to the Japanese victory in 1942. Jinping's plan and short timetable was just unrealistic. They lacked the supplies for a long-term campaign, and they lacked popular support outside of the Chinese community. Other than launching a war, Jinping should have recruited more Malayans and Indians into the party. By not doing so, they isolated themselves and made the Indians and Malayans ready allies of the British in the, in the coming struggle. Finally, Jinping and most of the MCP leadership was very young by today's standards. Jinping was only 26 when the emergency began, and most of the party leadership was in their mid to late 20s. Beyond their initial struggle against the Kuomintang and the Japanese, their experience was limited. I could barely hold a job at 26, let alone lead a complex revolution. Jinping was playing a deadly game of chess against men like Churchill, Gurney, and Templar, who had been fighting wars for decades in different parts of the world against different opponents. So one of the big questions is, why did the British succeed in Malaya and the Americans lose in Vietnam in a stalemate at best in Iraq? I think for one, these were different situations. One crucial advantage the Viet Minh had over the MCP is the material support from both the Chinese and the Soviets. The MCP fought on by itself all those years. Second, in Malaya, the British had the advantage in that all sides wanted to create a multi-ethnic state in Malaya, whereas Iraq was plagued by religious differences. Nevertheless, the British made a much greater commitment to winning hearts and minds in Malaya than Americans did in Vietnam and in some respects in Iraq. The British also spent a great deal of time investing in institutions in Malaya versus the Americans in Iraq. The British built hundreds of villages and infrastructure programs to build up a modern society showing the people the benefits of modern democratic government. The Americans, in contrast, let the Iraqi National Museum burn with all of its national and world treasures, while American forces rushed to secure the oil ministry. As always, I want to thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in June the 15th when we examine another cultural artifact that influenced the early Cold War, The Road to Serfdom by Hayek.
If you really enjoyed this episode or any episode thus far in the series, feel free to sh- share this episode on social media or tell, tell your friends about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in history but still want to help, please feel free to give us a good review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. Don't forget to check out our website for pictures for this episode or contact us with questions or follow us on social media at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word, for all of our Cold War content. If you'd like to financially contribute to what we're doing here, become a monthly contributor through Patreon. Even a few dollars a month helps this show to keep going. And, and while on the website, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.